I'm filled with joy as dry land crunches beneath my feet. Though I am no longer in my youth, I feel like an infant born again. The earth is new. Tearfully, I recall the first drop that fell. One droplet led to dripping, which turned to gushing and spilling. The floodgates of heaven had burst open. The great waters rose and the ark began to float. At the same time, my heart sank like a heavy anchor in my chest. Sorrow and grief gripped me as reality set in. Everything with the breath of life outside the ark would perish. You warned me this day would come, and you chose me to carry out your divine plan. As I set to work, I wondered how I could possibly build a vessel large enough to contain your creation. On my back, I carried pieces of a puzzle that I could not imagine, let alone fathom. My greatest encouragement was that your capable hands guided mine. The animals came in droves, and I stood in awe. Two by two they entered as if they knew the way, treading a path that led home, even if it was just temporary, though after some time it did not feel that way. But at last you closed up the skies and the treacherous waters receded, exposing mountain peaks, olive trees, and finally, dry earth. All right. Our creative team is so creative, isn't that creative? Just a way of kind of priming the pump to get you in on the story we're going to be talking about here this morning. Uh, talking about the flood. Uh, we're in a series where we're connecting the dots, helping people see the forest through the trees, the big picture. So we're calling this long story short, looking at the crucial narratives, or the stories that, that, that uh, looking at each one of them through the lens of covenant and kingdom, and uh, seeing how this through line weaves everything together. Uh, so the flood. We could uh, here talk about a lot of nerd questions that I would find fun, and some of you would find fun, others would find it boring, but we could discuss, uh, is, was this a local flood or a global flood? What is the evidence for one? What's the evidence for the other? Uh, is, is it possible to get all the species of animals onto this ark? And all sorts of questions like that. But we don't have time for that. <laughs> I want to get into the narrative. And so, so just, there's a lot of books on that. You can read about the various issues if, if that's the kind of thing that interests you. What we're interested in is the text. However it relates to history, the geological record, whatever, we're interested in the text because the text is what's inspired, right? And it gets in, it's an endorsement and it's authority from Jesus, not from how it correlates to the geological record or whatever. So we enter into the text. And what I want to do is unpack this story and see what it teaches us about the nature of divine judgment, which is a really important point because the way you think about divine judgment will affect your picture of God and your picture of God is the most important fact in your life. And then uh, after unpacking some of that, I will, at the end of this message, last 10, 15 minutes, um, just bring out, I think, what, what is the primary lesson for us to take away from this. And it's one that's very, very important, but very, very neglected. So it says this. We'll start with Genesis 6, starting with verse 5. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The author here is straining language to capture just how the deplorable state that humanity had sunk into. And, and in fact, you can see from the fall, from the chapter 3 in Genesis, up to this point, there's this crescendo of violence that's happening. And so the earth comes to this point where the author says that the 
every inclination, every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart, every fluttering, every thought was only evil all the time. So the author's saying here is that we had sunk to the point of being pure evil. And then he goes on to say this. So the Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. Uh, you see, God's plan could have turned out so good. It had such potential. If human beings will just keep covenant with God, then God's will would be done on earth as it is in, is, is in heaven. Covenant and kingdom. But it had at this point gone about as bad as it, in fact, as bad as it could possibly have gone. Not only was, had humanity sunk to the state of pure evil, but the author in Genesis, uh, he, he starts the flood story by talking about this bizarre event uh, where the, these angelic beings who were supposed to watch over us and care for humans had rebelled against God, and apparently they had the ability to materialize, perhaps to carry out their office as God intended it, which was to teach us and to you know, encourage us and things like that. But now they begin to use it to materialize themselves and have sex with, with human women. And those women begat Nephilim, they're called, which are these giant strong warriors. The author even says that these are the men of renown uh, in ancient times. And you find that in all these different cultures around the world, there's stories of these ancient folks who are half divine and half human, and, and they're mighty warriors. It's just that in most of the stories that you find around the globe about these Nephilim, the Nephilim are heroes. You know, the people look at them as, oh, those mighty, valor, brave warriors. But the, the biblical author, they're evil because they're hybrids. This unnatural union brought about unnatural creatures. And, and what the author is saying there is this, that, that uh, the human gene pool, though he didn't know about a gene pool, of course, but it was in the process of being compromised, in fact, eradicated. Since humans couldn't stand up to these superior angelic beings or to the Nephilim, God's whole project, the whole plan for humanity uh, to be taking care of the earth and the animals, it was on the verge of being completely derailed. God was done to God's last man. So God regretted how this had turned out, which means that God's plan had failed. Uh, it had such potential, but it turned out like this, it had failed. And what the flood really is, is a rescue operation. God's down to his last man, and so he salvages whatever can be salvaged. And the rest comes under judgment. I know a lot of folks think that God's will can't be thwarted. God's omnipotent. God's plans cannot fail. But see, if God's plans cannot fail, then that means that this was God's plan. <laughs> if, if this was God's plan to have humanity come to this deplorable state, how could God regret it? Boy, I really regret this. Things turned out just as I planned. It, it doesn't work. Not only that, but what kind of character does, would, would a God have to have to plan on human beings coming to this deplorable state and then having to come under this judgment that does not comport with the character of God that's re revealed in Jesus Christ? Yes, God's big picture plan, his ultimate plan for the cosmos, that's not going to fail. But when it comes to individuals and even with nations, God's plans often fail. Because it's not just up to God about what comes to pass. Um, in fact, every sin can be considered a thwarting of God's plan. So, for example, in, in Luke 7, 31, uh, it says that the Pharisees and Sadducees rejected the baptism of John the Baptist. And in that way, they thwarted God's plan for them. Humans have the ability to say no to God. In fact, this whole episode, the flood, is a testament to just how much say-so, how much 
freedom, how much influence God has given to us. The, the, the question that's asked is, how far will God let this go before God comes in and stops it? And it, it got down to the very, very end. The whole thing is about ready to be derailed. It's a testament to just how much say-so that we have. Uh, this is the risk that God takes when he creates a creation and populates it with, with, with free agents. Uh, and angels and humans, we can go this way and we can go that way. And there's a risk involved in that. And sometimes the risk doesn't turn out the way God would like it to. And this is the case in point. But the only way to avoid that risk is to not create free agents. And then you'd have a world that is free of sin, but it's also a world that would be devoid of the potential for love. Because only in freedom can we choose love, and love is the point of the whole thing. So God takes the risk. God thinks it's worth it. And apparently we agree, because we keep putting kids into this world, even though we know that there's going to be the risk, you have a risk of hardship, they might not turn out right or whatever, but we think it's worth it, so we keep having kids. And so it is with God. And then the author says, and this, this is one of the most amazing things about this narrative, that the heart of God was deeply troubled. Deeply troubled. He uses this word, Asha, which is the same word that's used when a woman goes into labor. So God was deeply, deeply grieved by this. Now, what's amazing is that, just like with the stories of the Nephilim, we have stories of the flood all around the globe. And all these different civilizations, there's flood stories. Best explanation for that, I think, is that these are all vague recollections of an event that happened way, 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 way a long time ago. Whether it was regional or global, something cataclysmic happened, and it reverberates throughout time in these different cultures and these stories. But in all these stories, I can't say all, I haven't read all of them, but in all the ones I have read, and I've read a lot of them, the, the flood comes about because the gods are ticked off. Like, for example, there's an uh, ancient Near Eastern uh, flood story where the god Anu sends a flood because she was taking a nap and human, human beings were having a party and they got too rowdy and they woke her up. So she's ticked off, so she sends a flood to wipe them all out. That's kind of typical what you find out there. This author gets that what's behind the flood is not an angry God, but a grieving God. A God whose heart is, 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 is deeply troubled. And see, you can tell that this is the Spirit of God breaking through here. For one thing, this, there's no parallel to this. This is completely unlike what we find in all the other literature, and that shows that there's something else going on. The Spirit of God was, was, was working here. But even more importantly, uh, this picture of God with a grieving heart and bringing judgment is exactly what Jesus teaches and models for us. So, for example, in Luke 19, Jesus is riding into Jerusalem, and he announces this terrible judgment that's going to, a divine judgment that's going to come on the Israelites. It'll be carried out by the Romans, uh, and, and he says, your babies are going to be thrown to the ground. Women are going to be slaughtered. It's a terrible, terrible, violent ju judgment. But it's not God that's going to be doing the violence. It's, it's the Romans. They're just doing what they want to do. But as Jesus announces this judgment, Luke says that he was crying. In fact, the word that's used there, kleo, can be uh, translated wailing, wailing. In fact, even in Luke's account, the wailing is so hard... You can tell that the sentences are broken. He, he, Jesus doesn't complete a full sentence because he's, he's crying as he's giving this. This is the heart of God behind all judgment. Jesus Christ is exactly what God is like down to his very essence. And so as, as we read the Bible, when we come upon episodes of judgment, whatever the biblical author may have seen or not seen, we, are, we have to know that behind that judgment is a crying God. Always envisioning a weeping God. Now, the, the biblical authors sometimes got that and sometimes didn't. 
this author gets it in this narrative, and, and uh, Hosea gets it in Hosea 11, and Jeremiah gets it several times about the crying heart of God and bringing judgment. But of course, there's other passages that don't reflect that at all. Where, where God, in fact, there's other depictions of God that look very much like what you find out in the ancient Near East in general, where God is, is, is angry uh, and, and raging. In fact, they, they, they take lyrics out of the songs of their, their pagan neighbors and just apply them to Yahweh. And they come with this warrior God image where God's got smoke coming out of his nose and fire coming out of his mouth and he's got a bloodthirsty sword and he's slaying people down indiscriminately. You see, you you find this, this, sometimes they get it and sometimes they don't. The author of Hebrews says they got glimpses of the truth. They got glimpses of the truth. But they couldn't see. They they also had a lot of clouds. And the reason is because God is not a coercive God. Um, to, To coerce a human being would undermine the purpose of the whole creation here. God influences, and he reveals as much of his true self as he can in any given moment. But because he's not coercive, there can come a point where an author just, it's, the, the belief is too deeply entrenched, they're not ready to let that go. They got it from their culture around them, and God has to accept that. Embrace them as they are. God accommodates them as they are. And so God, loving the person as they are and using them as they are, he enters into solidarity with that and therefore bears the sin of this fallen conception of God, and in doing that, it takes on an appearance in the biblical record that reflects that sin, which is exactly what God does on the cross. God stoops to enter into our sin. He takes on an appearance that reflects the ugliness of that sin. Um, and, and, and so what reveals God to us is not the surface ugliness of these portraits, just like it's not the surface of the cross that reveals what God's like to us. It's that we know that God stepped into this. It's the, it's, it's the stooping, uh, the, the humility of God who would... Enter, stoop down this low to stay in solidarity with his people. So they didn't always see it clearly. But uh, insofar as they see it clearly, it comports with Jesus. Insofar as they didn't, well, we're to see that the revelation of God in these passages is about God stooping to meet people where they're at, just like he does on the cross. So humanity had sunk to the state of pure evil, and the Nephilim were about ready to take over. And God's whole plan was about to be derailed, and God was down to his last man. So the Lord comes to Noah, and he says this, my spirit will not contend with humans forever, for they are mortal. Their days will be 120 years. My spirit will not always contend. The word there means to strive, to struggle with. Which means that up to this point, the spirit of God had been struggling with these human beings. Trying to get them from going, to, going down the path. Trying to get them to turn around. God's involved in every human life. Paul tells us this in Acts 17, where he says that in the rising and fall of empires and the times and seasons and whatnot, God is always at work in every human heart to get people to search for him, grow up for him, and possibly even find him insofar as their culture allows it. Because God's not far from any of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. So God's always involved in this, trying to restrain sin, trying to pull people back to him. But there can come a point where Because God won't coerce, there can come a point where God can see that his his, his mercy here, trying to protect people from the destructive consequences of their sin, trying to turn them around, it's not working. In fact, by holding off judgment, these people are just getting further entrenched in their sin. And so what is God to do in a situation like that? If, If even your mercy is harming them, you have no choice but to let them go. To let them go. It's very much like when you're dealing with an alcoholic or a person with a chemical problem. Yeah, at first, you try to protect them from the inherent destructiveness of their behavior, trying to clean up their mess and, 
You hope that they'll turn around, they'll see the, the error of their ways without having to suffer a great deal, but it can come to the point where it's not working, and there you have to have tough love that just lets people go. You love them, you hope that they'll learn the hard way, but they couldn't learn the easy way, but um, you got to let them go, and that's what God does. Uh, this is the judgment of God. Uh, it's, it's when God says, uh, you get to have your way. When God stops being in, influencing us to try to turn us around because it's not working, he just lets us go. This is what happens on the cross. The cross is a, the revelation of, of, of God's judgment on the sin of the world. Jesus is standing in our place, and this is a judgment of God, and it's a violent judgment. But the Father never acts violently towards Jesus, and the Father isn't angry at Jesus. I'm sure his heart is grieving, but this is the only way to redeem humanity. The only thing that God the Father does to bring about this judgment is let it go. And so we're told that, that, that the Father turned Jesus over to, or delivered Jesus over to these wicked humans who are operating under uh, 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 these fallen principalities and powers. And uh, they're the ones who inflict all the violence on them. God's part was simply to say, we're going to let sin run its course. So Jesus absorbs the full death consequences of sin, uh, all the consequences that are inherent in sin. I'll say more about that in a little bit. Um, and the, the Father's role is just to let it go. That's what the wrath of God is. That's the judgment of God. I got to let you go. So Paul says this in Romans 1, real clear illustration of this. In verse 18, he says, the, the, the wrath of God has been revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and all godlessness. Okay, so this is the wrath of God. Ready? Here's what it looks like. So the Gentiles, they, they, they worship the creature more and not the creator. They love the creature more than the creator. They become idolaters. They exchange the, the truth of God for a lie and all this other stuff. So as a result, the wrath of God is revealed. And here's what it looks like. In verse 24, Paul says, Therefore God gave them over into the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity. And then in verse 26, verse 26 says, Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lust. And then in, in verse 28, So God gave them over to a depraved mind. God gave them over. Which presupposes that up to this point, God wasn't giving them over. God was hanging on to them. Saying, don't go down this road. This is the road of destruction. But there can come a point where if, the, if God's mercy isn't working, God's trying to protect them from the death consequences of their own sin. Staying that off. God is life. Sin is rejecting God. Leave me alone. So sin is choosing death. In fact, a lot of verses teach that very thing. Uh, but God tries to hold off the death consequences in his mercy to give space for us to turn around and redeem this. But if that doesn't work, God has to let go. That is the wrath of God, and that's all God ever does in bringing about a judgment. And so throughout the Bible, in the Old Testament, for example, you, you hear a lot about God turning his people over, delivering them over to Nebuchadnezzar, delivering them over to the Assyrians. Or sometimes it says uh, the Lord hides his face or turns away or withdraws, or abandons his people, or forsakes his people. It's a constant theme. This is what judgment looks like. The biblical authors couldn't always see this because they're conditioned by their cultural environment. But even when they ascribe violence to God, if you read their, their, their own narratives carefully, it becomes very clear that the violence that they attribute to God, God didn't actually do. Uh, that's why Jeremiah and, and Ezekiel, over 50 times, they apply the same violent verb to God and to Nebuchadnezzar or the uh, Babylonian army when Babylon's coming in to invade Israel. Uh, they'll say, God's going to smash families and, and, and invent his wrath and show no compassion. Nine verses later, they say, Nebuchadnezzar will smash families and will show no compassion. And as a matter of historical fact, it was Nebuchadnezzar, not God, that carried out this violence. So why did the authors attribute the violence to them, to, to, to God? 
when they themselves know that God didn't do it? And the answer is because that's what everybody in the ancient Near East does. Ascribing violence to God is a form of praise in the ancient Near East. In fact, it's the highest form of praise. They worship their gods because they're violent. And it's sort of a competition among the gods of who's the more ghoulish and macabre and, and, and vicious and powerful. And so it's considered an insult not to ascribe violence to whatever, whoever carries it out you attribute it to, to God. It's like in the ancient Near East, these guys would go out and they'd fight, you know, for like you always do and conquer armies and slaughter. But they would always say, our God, our God slaughtered the army. When they knew very well it was them. But, in fact, their gods don't exist, so their God couldn't have done that. But they say this because it's their way of praising God. They give God the credit for the victory and the credit for the violence. Biblical authors do the same thing. Um, the, spirit is, the Spirit is pushing them in a different direction, influencing them to see that God actually only lets go with a grieving heart. And sometimes they get that, other times they don't. And what we have is just a depiction of God that looks very much like the ancient Eastern gods in bringing judgment. And then we come to this passage, uh, starting with verse 11. It says, Now the earth was corrupt. Shachat. Everyone say, Shachat. Yeah, now you gotta get that guttural, like, like you're trying to get some phlegm up. Shachat. Everyone say, Shachat. My favorite thing about Hebrew is that, that ha. You must told him, Menachim Shavatachim Gamyada. It's just, ha, ha, clears your throat. All right. It means to corrupt. Now I'll get to that word in a little bit, but remember it, Shachat. So now the earth was shahat in God's sight and was full of violence. Because that's what it looked like when you get shahat, it's manifested as violence. God saw, God saw how shahat the earth had become. For all the people on earth, the image of God bears, the one who was supposed to take care of the whole thing, they had corrupted shahat their ways. So God said to Noah, now listen to this. I'm going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to shachat both them and the earth. Now, because God's not a course of God and doesn't lobotomize or coerce people into having true thoughts about him, when we read the Bible, we, we have to know that sometimes there could be a gap between what God says and what the author hears. In fact, a pervasive theme in the Bible, and I talk about this in Cross Vision and Chris Vision of the Warrior God, out in the, books out in the gathering area, but uh, um, uh, a, a persistent theme is that the way you experience God and the way you hear God says as much about you as it does about God, maybe more. Because the way we hear God, the way we experience God, the way we think God is talking is conditioned by the state of our heart. And you have this teaching like, uh, along the lines of, of, to the wicked, God, God, or to the twisted, God appears twisted. But to the pure, God appears pure. So in some ways, you get the God that you deserve. Uh, so how we hear reflects uh, what's going on inside of us. To the degree that we're cultural conditioned, culturally conditioned and fallen, and we hang on to that, the Spirit can't influence out of that, well, to that degree, we're suppressing the Spirit of God. And, 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 and God will appear in the biblical record just as... It's Moses who's doing the writing, and I say Moses just because that's the traditional author of, of, of the uh, Pentateuch, and, and he's doing the writing, so it's going to reflect his perspective. The criteria we've always got to use is uh, Jesus Christ. In fact, Jesus provides one of the best examples of this. Jesus, from the start of his ministry, for three years, he's telling them, you guys, I've got to go to Jerusalem, and I've got to get killed, and I'm going to give my life a ransom for many. And when it actually happens, they're shocked. And the reason is because they, their preconception of the Messiah was so strong. 
They thought the Messiah was supposed to come and be a military political Messiah who's going to kick Roman butt and liberate Israel. And that's so entrenched that Jesus is saying the opposite, but they, it goes in one ear or out the other. Once Peter kind of catches on to it, like, what, you're going to suffer? And then he says, no, we're not going to let that ever happen to you. And that's when Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You're in my way. You're an adversary. Um, so it, just, it illustrates how God can say something, but what you hear depends on uh, what's in your heart and what's in your mind. What, 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 how open are you to being influenced uh, by the Spirit versus holding on to your own beliefs. And so, here's the thing. Jesus reveals a God who would rather die for his enemies at the hands of, of his enemies, on behalf of his enemies, rather than to use his power to crush his enemies. Jesus reveals a God who's altogether nonviolent. That's why God commands us to be nonviolent, because then we put on, display his character. So, the image of this, this depiction of God as personally killing every person on the planet with a flood is, I submit to you, not consistent with the revelation of God in Christ, which means that this is an accommodation. This is what the author thinks, what Moses thinks, and he's not ready to let that go yet, so, the, so God has to accommodate that, embrace that, and take on the image of what Moses thinks about God. So, he puts this in the, in, in the mouth of God, that I will wipe out uh, all the earth. I suspect that God said something like, all life is going to be wiped out, and what Moses hears, he says, all life is going to be wiped out. But Moses hears, I'm going to wipe out all life. Because that's what any ancient Near Eastern person would assume. All violence is credited to your God. So he uses this word shachat. Um, and it's one of the things that confirm. Uh, what I found is that when, when you read the Bible from a cross perspective, because all scripture is supposed to point to the, ultimately to the revelation of God on the cross, when you, when you do that, you find confirmations in the text itself that God didn't actually do the violence that the author is, uh, is ascribing to him. So in, in Genesis, for example, uh, in, in Genesis 6, actually Genesis 7, the author never applies any violent verb to God. In terms of describing how the flood happens, the violent verbs are always applied to other things. Yeah, he says the waters burst forth, the abyss opened up, uh, the floodgates were opened up, and the, the, the waters came. And so the verbs are always attached to the waters. Now you may be thinking, well, waters aren't agents. Uh, what kind of explanation is that? God floods the world and says, don't blame me, blame the water. And it's not a very strong argument. But see, we, to understand the text, we've got to enter into an ancient Near Eastern mindset. And, and in the ancient Near Eastern world, and this is true for every nation in the ancient Near, Near Eastern world, um, water, when it's used in any kind of threatening context or any kind of associated with God or anything, it, it, it's never just H2O. It's always more than that. Um, they, everyone believed that the earth was, was surrounded by water and sat on water and had pillars holding it up. But those waters had a personality. They were menacing. They were threatening. Uh, they wanted to destroy the earth. And every, every ancient Eastern culture believed that their God had to hold these waters at bay to preserve the order of creation and the order of society. And if God ever stopped doing that, well then, these hostile waters, it's their way of thinking about demonic forces, principalities and powers, the thief who comes only to kill, steal, and destroy. It's like the world is surrounded by a bunch of pit bulls who just want to get at it, just want to devour it, and God's holding them back. But if the people on the world say, God, leave us alone... God will stay in there fighting to, no, don't do those. There's pit bulls that want to devour you. But if that's not working, there comes a point where God with a grieving heart has to say, okay, I'll give you your wish. And the pit bulls come and devour. This is what's happening here with the flood. So we find this in the Bible all over the place. Uh, one example, Psalms 104. The author says this. And here he's talking specifically about the flood. He says, uh, at your rebuke, the waters fled. At the sound of your thunder, they took flight. 
You set a boundary they cannot cross. Never again will they cover the earth. And, um, and so, so here, you don't find the rebuke in the Genesis 6 account, but you find it here. The waters have personality. They're demonic forces. God has to fight them, put them in boundaries, and hold them back. And God does that to create space for people so they don't experience the, the destructive consequences of their sin. There comes a point where God sees that that's not working. Uh, in, in Job 22, it says this, uh, that, that the people at the time of the flood, they said they were carried away before their time. Their foundations washed away by a flood. They said to God, leave us alone. That's the essence of all sin. Leave me alone. I want to be Lord of my own life. And there came a point where God said, okay, I'll have to grant you your wish. And for judgment to come, God doesn't have to do anything. He has to stop doing something, and that is to let it go, to let it go. Which brings me to the word shahat, shahat. It's another way that confirms that God isn't the one that actually did this violence. The author says this. Um, Let me say this at first. In Hebrew, there's no distinct word for punishment. Uh, One word that can cover every crime. Rather, what authors do is... To describe the punishment for a crime or a sin, they'll take the crime or sin, the root of that word, and use a derivative of it. So, for example, if you, if you corrupt, well, then you're going to be corrupted by your corruption. If, if, you're, if you're evil, you're going to be devoured by your evil. If you're a destroyer, you're going to be destroyed by your destroying. And so the Bible talks a lot about our sin ricocheting back on us, coming back on us, coming back on our own head and things like that. It really shows in Hebrew, the Hebrew mind, they have an organic understanding of, of, of judgment where the judgment is, comes out of the activity itself. It's organically related to the sinful activity itself. God doesn't have to impose a sentence, a judicial kind of thing. Rather, he just has to let sin run its course for judgment to come. Shachat. So he says that humans had become shachat. We had become corrupt. And because humans had become corrupt, and we were the landlords, we were put here on earth to take care of the earth and the animal kingdom, that's our first mandate. Because of that, when we become shachat, the earth becomes shachat. It becomes full of violence. And so the Lord here says, everything's going to become shachat. Uh, Moses hears, I'm going to make everything corrupt. I'm going to destroy it with corruption. But all God's really doing is saying, I'm going to let corruption go. The corruption is, the corruption is here already. And if corruption is what you want, then corruption is what you're going to get. And what it looks like when God lets shachat run its full course is the flood. The flood is a natural consequence of the corruption of human beings. Um, and what that means, folks, is this. It's a supreme illustration of, of human beings. When human beings are rightly related to God, then we're rightly related to ourselves, to one another, to the earth, and to the animal kingdom. But when we break covenant with God and we're not rightly related with God, we're never rightly related with ourselves. We're never rightly, totally rightly related to others. And we're not rightly related to the earth and the animal kingdom. And since we're responsible for that, well, the earth and the animal kingdom suffers as a consequence of it. What it means, folks, is that we human beings, in the image of God, we are, we are responsible for the earth and the animal kingdom. And this flood story is simply showing the catastrophe that can happen when human beings, God's appointed viceroys, his landlords here on this planet, when we don't keep a covenant with God and we don't take responsibility for the earth and the animal kingdom, catastrophe happens. Now, I know that some folks... If you come from a conservative background, when you hear me say that it's our job to take care of the earth and the animal kingdoms, what you may hear is, oh, here's that more of that liberal stuff again. Oh, here's a, you're gonna, democratic politics being pushed on us here. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. 
It's, at the very least, it's unimportant. It's unimportant. We ought to be focusing on saving souls. That's our job, not worried about animals and the earth and the environment and all that liberal stuff. But I submit to you, this story and the Bible as a whole, if you take it at all seriously, yes we're, we're, yes, we're to be concerned with saving souls, but I submit to you, if you take the Bible seriously, you can't avoid, you can't avoid the conclusion that we're all supposed to be saving the earth and the, and the animal kingdom, amen? That was our first mandate. And this isn't some liberal thing, some democratic thing, some tree-hugging thing, or, or some unimportant thing, certainly not unimportant. This was our first mandate, and it's never been retracted. It's never been rescinded. This is our Magna Carta. This is our charter. From the perspective of Genesis 1, this is why we're here. God's saying, I want someone to take care of my garden and my pets. Boom, here's human beings. Do it. It's our first, first mandate. So there's nothing liberal or whatever about this. This is, the, this, is, this is what we're called to do. And God gives us this mandate because God cares about the earth and the animal kingdom. Cares deeply about it. In, in, in Genesis 8, the first verb that's applied to God in the flood narrative is a, is a verb of redemption. Because it says this, can you put up, uh, that God remembered Noah and all the wild animals and the livestock that were with him in the ark, and he sent a wind over the earth, or it could be he breathed his spirit over the earth, to push the waters back. What I want us to notice here is that God remembered not just Noah, but he remembered the wild animals and, 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 and uh, the, the, the livestock that were on the ark. God cared about them too. Next chapter, God makes a new covenant with human beings. But he also makes it with the, with, 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 with the animal kingdom. In fact, several times in the Old Testament, God makes covenants with animals. He cares about the animals. And you find this attitude reflected in different ways throughout the Bible. Uh, for example, God tells Jonah uh, that one of the reasons why he didn't want to judge Nineveh is because there's so many uh, livestock there. He didn't want them to be, be harmed. He cares about the well-being of animals. And in Habakkuk, too, he's given this prophecy up against this king, and he says this, the violence that you have done to Lebanon will overwhelm you. Note, your own violence is going to ricochet back on you. Actually, in the biblical perspective, human beings punish, our, we punish ourselves. Your violence is going to come back on you. But then note this, and the destruction of animals, your destruction of animals will terrify you. Somehow, the harm that you've done to these animals is going to come back on you. It's going to terrify you. The consequences of you, you'll finally see the gravity of the crime that you've done and the consequences of it. God cares about the earth and the animal kingdoms. He cares deeply. And if God cares, then we have to care. Amen? We've got to care. Now, if it strikes you as that this is no big deal, like, why is he preaching a whole sermon on this? The reason is, if you don't think it's a big deal, it's because you've been conditioned to think it's not a big deal. And the truth is, both the Western church and Western culture, we have been conditioned to be apathetic towards animals unless they're our pets. We... we We've been conditioned to see cows and, and chickens and pigs as just a product to be consumed, just tasty meat, you know, just, just something to make our life a little bit better. And because they're just products to be consumed, well, we can treat them like products. And so you, you stack them in these little farms and you pile them on top of one another. And in industrial farms, they're put in situations where they can't do a single thing that's natural for, to, for them to do except eat and poop. That's it. Their entire existence is unnatural. They, they, nature has wired them over millions of years. They've been wired to, to, to run and to socialize and to uh, hunt, hunt and things like that. And they, if they can't do anything, any of that, well, they suffer. Anytime you can't do what you're, what's natural for you to do, you suffer. My little dog, Gracie, oh, the cutest dog on the planet. But she's very, got a lot of energy, man. Morkies are needy dogs, I'm telling you. So, but... <laughs> 
If she doesn't get some playtime, I mean, she is just, she, she has been bred to hunt and to rip things apart and to chase things and to, you know, and, and that's what's natural. And so I have to take her out and we throw frisbees and play tug of war and chase, you know, things I throw or whatever. And you can, she's happy. She has a smile on her face when she's doing this. But if she doesn't get that, she starts to go crazy. Uh, she'll start to rip things up and, and just, she, you can see she's just anxious. She's just like, she can't settle down. And if it goes on too long, Depression gets added to that, and you can tell, and some dog lovers here know this, you can tell when your dog's depressed. She's sad. It's anxious and depressed. And here's the thing. The average pig is smarter than the average dog. And, 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 And when I think about Gracie having to be in a crate where she couldn't even turn around, and that's the situation in many industrialized farms, they can't even turn around. They have to look straight ahead forward. Their entire existence, when I think of Gracie in that situation, it just crushes my heart. I would rather have her euthanized than to live in a hell existence like that. And right now, there are billions of cows and pigs and chickens that are in that condition, that are living in that hell. Nothing natural about their existence whatsoever. That is not by any semblance at all reflective of the kind of dominion that we're supposed to have over the earth and the animal kingdom. We're supposed to reflect God's care uh, and God's love in the way that we have dominion over the earth and the animal kingdom. That means we don't, we're not supposed to exploit them. We're not supposed to be abusing them. We're supposed to be stewarding them, taking care of them, caring about their well-being. Now, we don't want to think about that. And, and, and we're conditioned not to think about that. We're conditioned to sort of pretend like those animals don't have any feelings, even though we all know that they do. No, we don't want to project our feelings onto them. That's anthropomorphic. But they've got deep feelings. And, 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 and we don't want to think about that. So we just kind of put it out of our mind. Who cares what goes on in these industrial farms because it, it, it helps us get our, our, our tasty meat cheaper. We're, we're, we're a lot like in the same situation as the British were in the 18th and 19th century where everybody knew that they were benefiting from the slave trade. They didn't own slaves, not like those Americans. They didn't own them, but they benefited from them. They had the slaves going to the Caribbean islands and they got their sugar cheaper that way and their flour cheaper that way, their wheat, uh, their cotton. Life was good. Now, there are, there are all the people who are saying, here's some alternatives. We don't use slaves for this product, but you got to pay a little more for that. And the majority of people said, no, no, we'll take the cheap stuff. Even though, even though they knew that slavery was brutal, uh, they had heard that, they, they knew that. But if you're talking about Africans and these Europeans, you know, they, they, at this point, there's this racism that, yeah, they may feel things, but it's not like what we, what we white Europeans would feel. And so you just push it out of your mind and don't think about it. It's too inconvenient to think about. We just like the fact that we get it cheaper. Folks, that's the situation we're in. God cares. We may think, who cares about what happens to cows and pigs and, 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 and chickens? But I'll tell you, God cares. And if God cares, we've got to care. It's our first mandate, so it's got to be a high priority. This is the, our Magna Carta. Job number one. Will you take care of my environment and the, the animal kingdom? And so at the very least, at the very least... This means this. Um, if you eat meat and consume dairy products, you have, I submit to you, a God-given responsibility. As one who bears the image of God and, and, and for whom this mandate applies, you have a God-given responsibility to learn what, if any, suffering an animal went through to get on your plate. Because to the degree that that animal suffered to get on your plate you are now responsible for that suffering. Just like the British were responsible for the slave market because they were supporting it. 
Learn, this isn't about whether you eat meat or not. That's a different sermon. This is about the treatment of animals and caring about how you might be contributing to the nightmares, suffering of animals. And if you're buying them from industrial farms, folks, um, chances are that the animal went, through, animal went through a great deal of suffering to get on your plate. Now, this has been well documented, uh, and it's easy to find out. Just Google PETA or industrialized farms, animal abuse or whatever, and prepare to be traumatized, because some of what you're going to see is going to be terrible. But it's, we've got to know, we've got to know what goes on out there. And I know it's more expensive to buy free range uh, or local, and maybe you can't afford that. But insofar as it's possible, make choices that don't have negative repercussions for the animals. Now, God may lead you to get involved in other ways to take care of his creatures, but at the very least, we've got to be a people who take responsibility for what we eat. You know, Paul at one point said this. He said to the Corinthians, we will judge the angels. Now, there's a rabbinic and Christian tradition that holds that the angels he's talking about are, we're called the watchers, the ones who are supposed to be taking care of us. And in this tradition, the reason why they're going to be judged by us is because their job was to take care of us, and so how well they did that job will be the criteria by which they're judged. And you'll find a few theologians in church history, only a few, who make the same argument about animals for the same reason. Our job is to take care of the, them, to maintain their well-being. That will be a criteria that will be used to assess how well we did. And now Habakkuk 2.17 takes on a new meaning. Will our destruction of animals come back to terrorize us? <laughs> Think about that as you're making food choices, as you're shopping. Uh, this is our mandate, folks. This is, this is our concern. This is, this is just what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Care. Because... Our right relatedness with God and our right relatedness with creation, it all depends on this. It really is in our hands. The flood story shows that when God entrusts us with the, with, with the mandate, with the job, he really doesn't trust us. And it goes for better or for worse. You can't determine what the world as a whole is going to do, but you can determine what you're going to do. Care. Open up your heart to the well-being of animals. Care about that. Let them get on the inside. Let them inform your food choices. Amen? Would you stand? I uh, would like to ask the prayer teams to come up here, and if you're here this morning and have any need that could use prayer, uh, come on up here and pray with these folks. They'd love to minister to you. And if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, but maybe there's something on your heart that's saying you should check that out, listen to your heart. Come up here and talk to these folks. They'd love to explain to you what it is to be a follower of Jesus. And one thing it is to be a follower of Jesus is that you care about saving souls, but also about saving animals and saving the environment. Uh, amen. So as we leave here this morning, can we do it as a people that are committed to honoring that first mandate, to becoming aware, to letting the well-being of animals on the inside, and to let it affect our food choices? If you're in agreement with that, say amen. amen. If you're not, stick around. I want to talk to you some more. God bless. <laughs>